morning. It was, it was kind of funny. I was talking to my husband this morning, and one of the things that he said was, remember the last time you were preaching on a Sunday morning? And I do remember it quite well, because I think at the time I was seven weeks pregnant, and so nobody knew that we were expecting. And I was so sick that I had a video queued up in the sound booth in case I needed a moment to myself off stage, and I had a bucket backstage too, just in case. So lucky for you guys, I haven't thrown up since yesterday. <laughs> Today, um, one of the quotes that I want to ponder on first was a quote by one of my dear professors. The depth of your doctrine is the depth of your devotion. I think a lot of times it can be easy because our worship team does such a great job of setting the stage emotionally. It's easy to feel God's presence in the moment of worship, in a moment of prayer, in a moment of praise. But so often we can also encounter God in that same way through scripture, through the study of his word. We often overcomplicate things like theology. Theology, all that it means, theo is God, ology is study of, it's the study of God. Whether or not you think you have a theology, I can promise you, you do, because all that theology is, is thoughts about God. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to hopefully build some of that depth. Because let me tell you, one of the reasons that it's so important to have theology is because your emotions will fail you. We live in such a broken world that's been so fragmented by sin that ultimately you are going to face something in your life that radically shakes whatever foundation you've built. And if your foundation is just upon what you know of feeling of God, you're going to have a really hard time standing strong. But let me tell you, in moments when I've felt like God is <laughs> nowhere to be seen, in moments where pain overwhelms you to the point where you feel like you can't even lift your head, your theology, what you know to be true, will be your foundation even if you don't know it to be true in your heart. And so today we're going to talk about the whole Bible. Because the Bible is one book made up of 66 different books. And let me tell you, they all tell one unified story, and it all points to Jesus. We're going to be talking about God's plan of redemption. One of the first things that we need to talk about when we talk about redemption is, what the heck does redemption mean? <laughs> now, the, God's way of redeeming people is called covenant. The Hebrew word is bereave, if you're curious. Um, but covenant is the way that God communicates with his people. All that a covenant is, is it's a promise. You, a lot of you in this room have actually engaged in covenants, both with God and a lot of times with your spouse. We don't often make covenants or promises with other humans other than the covenant of marriage. And what marriage shows us, what marriage can teach us about covenants is that they're sacred, that they're unbreakable, that there are consequences to breaking that sacred bond, that sacred promise. The concept of redemption, we're, one of the ways that we can see it is actually within the patriarchal structure of the Old Testament. Now, if you just had a little tizzy because I said the word patriarchy. It's not like that. It was truly set up as a patriarchal structure. And what I mean by that is that the men were the ones with the place in society. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that's a good thing. But that was how antiquity was. If you were not a man, you did not have a place in society. And so what needed to happen was women. Obviously, we need some way to get access to society. We need some way to benefit the things and the protection that society can have. And so we need to be redeemed. We need to be brought in. A lot of times that was through marriage or through your father. You had to have a link to society. You had to be brought in because you were not given a place organically. And we see this time and time again with humanity where because of the choices that we make, it puts us at odds with God. We do not have a place organically in his family. We need to be redeemed. We need to be brought in by God. Another way that we see this throughout the Old Testament is the concept of the kinsman redeemer. 
We see this with Boaz and Ruth. She's a woman in this really tough place, totally outside of society, outside of protection, in a really vulnerable place. And a member of her family, Boaz, takes her under his wing. He takes her into his family and he marries her. We see the same thing with Lot and Abraham. Lot was Abraham's nephew, and he made a lot of really bad decisions, and he ended up being totally far away, and he ended up getting himself in a really tough position with another army. And so Abraham, as his kinsman redeemer, had to go back and rescue him. Now, he didn't marry Lot, but he brought him back in. He was his family member. He walked him through it. And so God does the same thing with us. He forms these unbreakable, sacred bonds with us through covenant, and he does it time and time again. The first covenant that we see is actually back in Eden, the Edenic covenant, all the way back in Genesis. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat of any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. It's easy to look at that and to kind of glance past it, but this is a promise that God is making. I've given you dominion. I've given you the job of naming every animal. I've given you dominion over the world, but there is a condition. I have my part. You have your part. You must not eat of this tree. Humanity at this time was enjoying the Garden of Eden. They were enjoying the perfect presence of God. Now, I would love to take credit for this idea, but I can't. It's um, a concept from Dr. Sandra Richter, and it's the three Ps. God's people, in God's presence, in the place of God. And that was perfection. That was the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were perfectly God's. They were perfectly in his presence. Later, you see that um, after Adam and Eve had sinned, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking, approaching, That was how close the presence of God was. He was like a friend. He was physically present with them. And they were perfectly in a place designed and created by God for them to flourish. Now, as I alluded to, Adam and Eve sinned, and they broke that perfect presence. They broke that perfect unity with God. And what sin broke was all three of those. And this is where brokenness begins to emerge. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. In a moment, Adam and Eve decided to be like God, and so they ate of the forbidden fruit. After that, God had no choice. They had broken their covenant. And so he had to push them out of his presence. They were cursed. In that moment, we also see God's plan for the redemption. He actually proclaims a curse to both Adam and Eve. To Eve, he says, you will have pains in childbirth. And to Adam, he said, you are going to toil. You're going to have to work for your food. And you are made from dust and you're going to return to it. But in the same moment, he also gives a promise that one day they will be back in God's presence. One day, humanity will have another chance to be perfectly in God's presence. I will put hostility between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent, adversary, Satan. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He will bruise your heel is what some translations say. It will hurt. We will experience the pains of sin, but ultimately, you will crush his head. The blow that he strikes to you will only be a flesh wound, but yours, yours will be fatal. And so we see God's plan begin. Next up, we see Adam and Eve and their offspring and their offspring's offspring come to the place of Noah. Very quickly, Brokenness has completely infiltrated the human race, and they've become so wicked that God sees no other, no other possibility but to start over with a flood. He decides to destroy the earth except for one man and his immediate family, 
and we see the Noahic covenant. One of the things that you see affirmed throughout antiquity and history is the story of God. Did you know that most major areas of the world have some form of a creation story that begins with a flood? That is how, for most of the world, they view their world as starting as with a flood. We know that there was a whole story before then in the Garden of Eden, and we know that there were things that led up to that flood. But all that they know is that one day, things started with a flood. We see scripture time and time again supported throughout history. Following the flood, he gives a sign to Noah and his family who he supernaturally preserved. He gives a rainbow. Today, it's kind of ironic because we know it as supporting something that goes against God's plan. But in that time, it was a promise to God's people. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth and the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. It's important because I think when we read this and we see that God remembered, we immediately think, Does God forget? If we're going through something and it feels like God is not following through on his promise, did he forget? But the concept of biblical remembering and forgetting is far different from our concept. God is not like a man that he would forget the promise. Instead, what it means is it's almost like a recognition. When he sees the rainbow in the clouds, he will remember his covenant. He will say, yes, I made that covenant with my people, and I will act according to what I said. It is a recognition that he will follow through. So every time that we see these signs, we can see God is continuing to act on the promises that he gave his people. Now, what is the significance of the bow? Hunters, you'll know this. He put his bow in the sky. He put it upwards. Why would you do that? (laughs) Unless you want an arrow to come shooting back down. He was doing it because it was a way of saying, let it be upon me if I do not keep this. A bow trained on God. Like a constant threat of if I don't follow through, pain will be upon me. An arrow will shoot into the sky. So it's not a bow pointed at us saying, I promise I will not destroy you even though I can. It's the opposite way. It's the merciful way. We see that Abraham's children had children, and their children had children, and their children had children. And then we see the next covenant that God makes with his people, the Abrahamic covenant. Abram and Sarai were two very important people in the Old Testament. You may know them by different names. You may know them by the names Sarah and Abraham. But first, they were Sarai and Abram. They had to be transformed by God, so much so that he saw it fitting to completely change their name. Abram means exalted father. Names were very, very important to the Hebrew people. A lot of times they signified important events surrounding somebody's birth, kind of a purpose for their life. A lot of times God would give them names for their children. He is exalted father. But Abraham, Abram, had a big problem. Month after month, his wife remained barren they were not able to conceive a child. God's first promise to Abram was that he would make him a great nation and that he would have a huge family, that one day every seat at his table would be full. And yet, month after month, they were met with disappointment. One of the most profound reflections that I've heard on this was, um, we can actually read part of Genesis 15, 
So the Lord looks at the sky and he says, like all, if you can imagine, all the stars in the sky, you can't even count them. This is how numerous your offspring will be, Abram. When we go outside, a lot of times we can really only see the Big Dipper. We can see a handful of stars, but at this time, they had no modern light. He lived in the desert. Night after night, they didn't have the busyness that we had. Night after night, Abram sat in the middle of the desert, and he saw more stars than you could ever imagine. And every night, it was a reminder of the promise, yet it was also a reminder that God had not yet followed through. But eventually, eventually he would. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram replied, O Lord God, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram continued, Behold, you have given me no offspring, so a servant in my house will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to Abram, saying, This one will not be your heir, but the one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And the Lord took him outside and said, Now look to the heavens and count the stars if you're able. Then he told him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Lord also told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram replied, Lord God, how can I know I will possess it? How can I know you will follow through? And the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So Abram brought all these to him, split each of them down the middle, and laid the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey descended on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and suddenly great terror and darkness overwhelmed him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Remember this. But I will judge the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will depart with many possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the halves of the carcasses. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenazites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Now, I, I don't believe that any of us have done this before. I would believe that this is a foreign concept of sacrificing animals, cutting them open, being put into a deep sleep, and seeing a flaming torch pass between them. But what I can tell you is that this is God using a cultural, a cultural motif of that time. And it was a covenant between a lesser and a greater, suzerain and vassal, a wealthy landowner and a poor servant. He's modeling this. And so typically what would happen is you would have a wealthy landowner if you were a servant and you would say, I'm going to work the land. I'm going to promise to be faithful to you. And in return, you're going to give me this land to work. You're going to take part of my profits and you're going to protect me from any invading armies. At this time, the vassal, the lesser party, would walk between the two cut animals and it would be symbolic. It would say that if I do not uphold my end of the bargain, of the bargain, my flesh will be torn, like these animals. And yet at this time, we see that God used this cultural motif, but he flipped it on on its head. Because it wasn't Abraham or Abram that walked between these two pieces. It was God. That was the presence of God. And so what he is saying is, Abram, this is the sign that I will give you. If I do not uphold my covenant, my flesh will be torn. If you do not uphold the part of your covenant that I've given you, my flesh will be torn. All the way in Genesis, we can see the hints of the gospel. Because let me tell you, 
time and time again, we failed to keep our promise to God. We failed to keep our covenants to God. And there was a price that had to be paid for that. I want to finish out Abram and Sarai's story because God actually, shortly after this, he changes their names to Abraham and Sarah. And so instead of exalted father, Abram becomes father of multitudes. Abraham. They still don't have a child. In fact, the scripture actually says that Sarah's in menopause. She is completely past childbearing age. And then one day she conceives. She, she actually, she laughed when God told her that she was pregnant and that they were expecting. She laughed. And so God, having a sense of humor, said that they were to name their son Isaac, which means he who laughs. Isaac, I'm going to introduce you to another theological concept, the concept of first mention. When something is mentioned for the first time in scripture, whether it's a word or a concept, it holds extreme significance because the first time that we see it mentioned is when God chooses to define it. And so this is a concept that we use when we study words, when you're trying to see what a word means in biblical context, but it can also show types or motifs, metaphors, anything like that. Pick your poison. Um, And so what it does is when God defines this the first time, it sets the tone for the rest of scripture. And with Abraham and his son Isaac, we see for the first time the word love defined. The first time that one specific word for love is used. God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Literally sacrifice him. Not theoretically, oh God, I give you my child. Do with them what you want. I trust you with them. No, God literally asked Abraham to kill his son Isaac. So they head up to the mountain. And at some point, I would imagine Isaac started getting a little bit suspicious because he noticed that there wasn't a sacrifice with them. They didn't have a ram. He asks his father about it. He says, don't worry, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And right at the moment that Abraham is about to sacrifice his son. Now, it's hard enough for parents in the room to imagine killing your child. It is hard enough to imagine that. Can you imagine? This is the child that Abraham Abraham has spent his entire adult life praying for, waiting for. Isaac is the sign of God's faithfulness. Isaac is the sign of a promise fulfilled. He is his his only son, his only legitimate heir, the one that is actually supposed to protect Sarah in her old age because we know men typically die before women, probably because they make questionable choices. (laughs) I mean, I'm being honest. I think every, every time that I've pondered on that, I've I feel like it's just like divine justice where anytime I've pondered that, I've come home and I've seen my husband on a ladder. I'm like, yep, this makes sense. (laughs) Men's life expectancies are shorter than women. And this was one of the important patriarchal concepts was if your husband died, your oldest son would take care of you. He would be your link to society. And so Abraham, it's not only his son who will preserve his line, who is his promise, but the one that's going to take care of his wife in her old age when she's most in need of a protector, of a redeemer. And at the last moment, God says, no, don't do it. And a ram appears, a sacrifice appears. But when God had asked Abraham to make his sacrifice, he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. What does that phrasing sound like? Your only son whom you love. Sounds an awful lot like John 3.16. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that he loved so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The significance of this is that the first time that love is defined, it's a father who is not unwilling to give his only son just like God the Father, not unwilling to give his only son. That is the definition of love. God's little family ended up growing more and more and more, just like he'd promised. But 
just like he had told Abram, they would end up in a land that they did not possess. They would move from Canaan to Egypt, and they would be enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. Became apparent, initially it was a blessing, it was to protect them, it was during a time of plague, but eventually things went sour, and it became apparent that they would need somebody to help them. They would need some sort of exit strategy. And so God raised up Moses. And then we see the next promise that God made to his people, the next covenant, in the Mosaic covenant. Moses was by birth a member of Abraham's line, but was actually adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. As such, he would have specific training and access to study as a military, in military and political education. He knew how to command armies, how to lead massive groups of people. This is something that God would use as in the Mosaic Covenant, what we actually see established is God's nation, the nation of Israel. And so through these divine circumstances surrounding Moses' birth, God raised him up to be the first leader of that nation. He led Abram's people into exodus and into freedom and toward a land that God had prepared specifically for them. And yet they had to go through a season spent wandering the wilderness in order to prepare them. I'm going to tell you about another fun instance of first mention. After the exodus is actually where we see the first instance of praise in scripture. The first song. And it's after they've exited Egypt. And so they're celebrating. God has brought us out of slavery. God has freed the slaves. But at the same time, if you know the story of Moses... They're standing in front of a massive sea with Egyptians closing in quickly behind them. And what we see praise defined as is in anticipation. They praised God for what he had already done, for the fact that he had already freed them from the slaves, and yet they continued to praise him for what they anticipated him doing. They didn't know how he would carry them across the sea. He parted the sea They didn't know that that was how it was going to happen. They just knew that God was going to intervene. And if God had taken us this far, God is going to continue. And so that is our model for praise. That is what we praise. If you walked in here today feeling like you didn't have a reason to lift your arms and to say that God is good, this is the same model that we follow. We recognize that God has been working in my life, even in ways that I have not yet seen, But you know what? I'm going to praise him because I know that he's not going to leave me here and he's going to do that much more. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is when Moses goes up to, the Mount, to Mount Sinai and he gets the Ten Commandments. After that, we see all the law in scripture. We see all the rules of how they're supposed to engage, how they're supposed to work. And it actually reads like a political treaty. It reads like the setting up of a nation, like a constitution for the nation of Israel. But we also see the concept of holiness emerge. Because holy and unholy can't mix. It's actually why humans had to leave the garden. Because when they sinned, they became unholy. God is the ultimate holy. He is the definition of holy, and he's completely holy. And so... I mean, one thing that we also see throughout scripture is that holiness is consuming. It's dangerous for the unholy. There's actually a man by the name of Uzzah who, we'll get to this part, but there's the Ark of the Covenant, which is the physical manifestation, the presence of God. And he didn't follow what God asked him to when it came to specifications for carrying the Ark. And so he was carrying it. It was actually supposed to be ox that were carrying it. And he slipped and he dropped it and he reached out and he grabbed the covenant an unholy man touching the holy presence of God, and he was immediately consumed. He was struck dead. Holy and unholy can't mix. And God, being the ultimate source of holiness, he can't become unholy. And so the only solution is that us, unholy humans, something has to change. We need to be 
made clean. And what we also see is that God once again wants to have a resting place for his presence here on earth. We see all of the specifications that go into the temple. He's very specific. He says exactly what kind of wood he wants them to use, the kind of drapes that they should have, how much gold is to be used, because God wants to dwell among his people. But like I said, something has to change with their behavior, so he gives them these rules. He tells them how to not only become clean, that a lot of ritual purity laws, but how to behave clean. You shouldn't murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. If you want to be my people, if you want to be safe in my presence, these are the things that you have to do. And it works. After the law is given in the book of Leviticus, we see in Numbers that they're able to worship in God's presence. They're able to enter the temple. God's presence has been restored We see, remember the three Ps? We see two of those begin to be fulfilled. They're God's people, God's nation, and once again, God's presence is in a concentrated place on earth. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that things do not go as planned. Things go sour very, very, very quickly. And it's easy to look at that and say, oh, those silly Israelites, I can't believe they did it again. But I would imagine that our loving father is looking down on you saying, you may want to look in the mirror (laughs) because just as much as we like to say, oh my gosh, if I were the Israelites, I would have done things totally differently. You don't and you haven't, truthfully. You haven't, you've gone astray too. Their story is our story. So all of these things occur, more stories happen and then we reach the time of the judges, which is a time when Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And these military leaders, these political leaders called the judges, had to rise up to rule the nation because things were getting so out of hand. The last judge was actually also a prophet. His name is Samuel. And Samuel, all the Israelites, as this leader, as this political leader, they're begging Samuel for a king. Because all around they see nations. They're like, now that we're a nation, we want a king. We want somebody to fight our battles. We want somebody to tell us what to do. And Samuel's like, I don't know that you do, because once again, somebody has been telling you what to do. You have have had a king. You have had rules, and you haven't really done your part. And so we see Samuel approach the Lord, and he decides to ask on people's behalf. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that you have done to me. Since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king will reign over them. First, Samuel picks Saul as king. God picks Saul as king. Saul has some heart problems. Not a literal heart problem, but a metaphorical heart problem. While there are times that he serves God, there are also times that he doesn't. And actually, while Saul is still king, God picks a different king. And Samuel anoints David. This is the final covenant that we see before the covenant that we get to take part in. So David is the anointed king, but he's not yet the appointed king. And he's waiting, he's serving Saul as best as he can. And then one day, he is given kingship. He is the good king of Israel. He is the one who, even though he stumbles and falls, you can read about his story in Samuel. Even though he stumbles and falls, he remains soft to the the things of God. He remains open to the things of God. And we see God give him what's called a royal grant. It's total undeserved favor to rule. And we see three offices affirmed. The prophet, from this point on, we will have many prophets. Samuel was not the first prophet. Her first prophet was actually Deborah. She was another judge. We see the prophet, and their job is to talk to the people on behalf of God, to call out unrighteousness and sin. And then we see the priest, we are, we've already had priests, but it's affirmed. It becomes very important at this time. 
They're the ones that offer sacrifices. They speak to God for the people. And then we see the king, the one who administrates all of that, the one who provides protection, rulership, direction to the nation. David's son ends up ruining what God created. The kingdom fractures into two places. One part of the kingdom is destroyed completely, and then the other, some years later, is destroyed and sent into exile. And all the while, the voice of many prophets call out about Israel's idolatry. All that idolatry is is it's choosing to elevate other things above God. I talked about the marriage covenant. God compares his covenant to the nation of Israel to marriage. One prophet in specific, Hosea, he actually goes to marry, and I promise I'm not being crass, this is what scripture says, God asks him to go marry a wife of whoredom as a sign. He is supposed to be a sign like God, just like God is marrying an adulterous woman, someone who chooses to go away with somebody else. So has Israel chosen to go away with other gods. They bear three children, bloodshed, not my people, and not to be pitied. That is what is born out of an adulterous relationship with the world, out of an adulterous relationship with other gods. That is what the fruit of relying on other things other than God is. There's destruction promised by the prophets, but one of the common themes throughout the prophets is that it doesn't stop there. At the end, what they mourn for, what they tell the people about is the coming redemption, that one day God will remember their sins no more, that one day they will be in God's presence, one day all that's lost will be restored. The worship team can come. This is when we see the pivotal point for all humanity, Jesus Christ. Even secular sources will confirm that Jesus Christ, living and incarnate, did walk the earth as a man, What they disagree on is who he was. We say that he is Lord. Secular sources will also say that the single most influential person in all of human history was Jesus Christ. Whether or not they affirm who he was, whether or not they affirm his message or what he did, everybody can agree that Jesus Christ radically changed human history. He was the pivotal point for all history. Jesus was fully man and fully God. He came and he fulfilled many of the prophecies given. He came and he lived a perfect life. He then died and rose again after the third day of being dead. And in doing so, what he did was he defeated all death and sin. In the book of Ezekiel, who is one of the prophets, we actually see something unique happen. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around to the outside, to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling in from the south side. It's maybe hard to picture, but what Ezekiel sees is for the first time, water, water was purifying. Water was cleansing. Water was pure. It was flowing from the temple, and as it was going, it was bringing life. It was bringing holiness. For the first time, Ezekiel sees a vision of not something being holy, consuming what is unholy, but something that is holy, touching the unholy and making it clean. That is what Jesus was for us. Jesus was that perfect fulfillment. He was the one who came. He bore our sins. He bore our transgressions. And in doing so, he makes us clean. We don't make him dirty. We don't need to worry about making him unclean. He makes us clean. He redeems us perfectly to him. Jesus is also described as the second Adam, the second person with the ability to freely and completely choose whether or not to sin. You and I, we were born into sin. We have no choice. Early on, before we even understand it, we do it. We have no choice. We have no ability to walk freely, to be holy on our own. Jesus was the second person that was given that opportunity. And let me tell you, he was also the final. He was the last person to be given that opportunity. And so we no longer have to choose. We can choose Jesus. We can choose his righteousness and his righteousness becomes ours. If we look to scripture, we failed time and time again. 
We had all of history leading up to the birth of Jesus to try to do it right, to follow God's commands, and we failed every single time. Just like Jesus is the second Adam we see in Hebrews 2. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. What we see here is a dialogue between God and God and the Son. And just like Adam saying, here I am, after he had sinned, Adam had sinned and he had hid from God. And God said, Adam, where are you? And he said, here I am. And he was ashamed. He covered himself. And here we see the perfect fulfillment where Jesus is able to freely say, here I am, unashamed, because he completed the perfect work for us, along with all the children God gave me. Each covenant is perfectly fulfilled through Jesus Christ. In the Noahic covenant, we are also promised mercy just as Noah and his family. We are promised freedom from judgment and destruction. Just like in the Abrahamic covenant, we are unable to uphold the terms of any covenant. And as such, Jesus' blood is shed for us. His flesh is torn for our transgressions. In the Mosaic covenant, we get the law, and Jesus perfectly fulfills the law given through the Mosaic covenant so perfectly that we will never be bound by it again. We are perfectly holy through the sacrifice of his blood. Because let me tell you, each and every time in that law, there were sacrifices that were to be given because ultimately the price that had to be paid for sin was death and it was blood. And so time and time again, there were endless sacrifices. They never stopped. The work of the priest never stopped. But Jesus, as our perfect high priest, it describes Jesus taking his throne and he does what no priest had ever been able to do. He sits because his work is finished. His sacrifice is final. Through the sacrifice of his blood, we are able to freely approach him without fear because we are made completely holy. Never again do we have to worry about being struck down. Never again do we have to worry about our unholiness being inconsistent with his holiness. We have perfect access through Jesus Christ. In the Davidic covenant, we see three offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet to speak to the people on God's behalf, the priest to intercede to God on the people's behalf, and the king to rule, reign, and judge over God's kingdom. This is perfect fulfillment in Christ. Our final prophet, priest, and king. Our final intercessor. Our final sacrifice. And our final ruler. We can see stepping stones throughout the new covenant. We can see God making his covenant available to all people. First one man, then one family, then one nation. And the new covenant, the beauty of it is that it is available to everyone. It is available to all humanity. All that's required is a choice. And so you're left with you're left with a difficult choice and it's the most important one you could ever make. Are you going to choose allegiance with the one who since the beginning of time has planned for your redemption has worked for you? Or are you going to choose? There's no gray area here. I'm so sorry. There's no, there's no choice C. There's no option three. It is either choosing the one who made a way for you or choosing the adversary. Because let me tell you, just as much as this is a story of God fighting for your redemption, fighting to bring you in, there is another side. There is another player on the field. And at every step, he is working against you. The adversary, Satan. You cannot choose a third option. It is either the way of God or the way of one, the one who's been working against you. If we check back in with the three Ps, we see that through Jesus' sacrifice, we can all be God's people. It is no longer one nation. And honestly, we are not even relating to God as a king. What he instead says is that he adopts us into his family. We are given the same access to God that a child would have with his parents. We are perfectly God's people. And when Jesus left his disciples, we're checking in with the presence here. When Jesus left his disciples, he promised an advocate. 
He promised something even better. He gave us the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And once again, we don't need a temple. We don't need to go somewhere to experience the presence of God. Instead, what God did was he made us temples of the Holy Spirit. We have God's presence so perfectly, so completely that we carry it with us everywhere that we go. And then finally, God's place. This is the one piece that we are worshiping in anticipation of. Because if we look ahead to, to Revelation 22, we see a picture where one day we will again be in God's presence in his place perfectly. Because let me tell you, God's first intent in the Garden of Eden, humanity dwelling perfectly among him is also his final intent. Humanity, once again, dwelling with him in the garden. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing fruit every month. There is no winter in the kingdom of God. There is no season of barrenness. Every month produces fruit. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. You see, one of the things that they couldn't do at that time was they couldn't look upon God's face because it was so holy, it was so consuming. But in this vision, one day we will see God's face. We will be with him. We will be like him in his holiness, and we will one day be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The early church fathers thought that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And let me tell you, if you study the historical revivals of the people of God, every single time they have been so convinced that God is coming back within their lifetimes that they do not save money. They do not plan for the future. They live every day as if Jesus is coming back tomorrow because God's presence is so real to them. Jesus is coming back soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who also keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness and let the holy still be holy. Look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add him to the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book and of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life in the holy city, which are written about in this book. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of Jesus be with everyone. Amen. And with that, the Bible ends. There is an invitation that is given. Let all who are thirsty come. Jesus describes himself as the water of life, the one who, when you drink upon it, when you drink of it, you will never be thirsty. 
I'm gonna be completely honest with you. Like I said, there is a choice to be made. God or not God, who is by default the adversary. If you choose plan B, if you choose the adversary, your life is going to feel broken and it's going to feel meaningless. The thing that brings meaning, the thing that causes every need in our life to be met is Jesus Christ. And what I'm telling you today is that he has crossed history to meet with you. He has given everything that he could possibly give so that you could be part of his family. And there's an invitation today for our prayer partners want to come up. If you feel that quickening, I would call it the quickening of your spirit, but if you feel like your face gets hot and like your heart is beating out of your chest, that is the spirit and the bride saying, come, come, come to me. It's God beckoning you to relationship with him. None of us are promised tomorrow. None of us are promised next week, Sunday. But what I can tell you is that we have time today. And so if today you want to make a decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life, if you want to make a decision today to follow him with your whole life, I'd ask you to come forward, pray with our prayer partners. But for now, we say, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've given so that we may be part of your family. God, there's no words to explain what you've given. But God, would you, God, would you meet us here again today? Lord, for anyone who is wondering if today's the day that they make that decision, Lord, I pray that you would just make it so clear that you are seeking them. And God, I pray that um, the truth of who you are, the truth of what you've done, your faithfulness, your sovereignty would not be lost on us. Lord, that this would be something that we would carry with us. Lord, that as we look at your story, that we would remember time and time again that this is also our story. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless us this week. Lord, that you would go forth. Come, Lord Jesus. Have your way. Have your way among us. Have your way in this world. We worship you. Amen.